What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. The soft landing outcome looks fully priced in now as markets trade near their recent and all-time highs. And while some say it's time to question that consensus, there are also three bullish catalysts that we could get come January. We will reveal what they are and whether they're priced in already. Plus, it's the potential media merger everyone's talking about. But one of our guests says it would be a big mistake. He has a different idea for WBD and Paramount and says it would actually make media investable again. Touche. Stick around to find out what that is. And he was early and right on a non-office REIT that's up 40% this year. Our analyst is back with a different name in the sector that he's bullish on for 2024. We look forward to him revealing that. But first, stocks are rebounding from yesterday's late sell-off. The Dow, S&P, NASDAQ all higher. And bond yields are lower after softer inflation and GDP data this morning, with markets expecting a dovish PCE print tomorrow. And while everyone talks about the year-end Santa Claus rally, there are three catalysts looming in January that could also keep this market moving. Moving higher. Here to explain and maybe debate are Kevin Mon, Chief Investment Officer at Henyon and Walsh, CNBC's very own Dominic Chu, and we're also joined by Stephanie Roth, the Chief Economist at Wolf Research. Welcome, one and all. Dom, first just outline for us some of the maybe positive surprises could be around the corner. There are one of them or two of them are kind of consensus ones that have happened and carry over into next year from this year, and one of them is maybe a contrarian type play opposite of what we saw this year. So point number one is the world's second biggest economy, China. It's been an underperformer so far this year. They've had their economic problems. There's no doubt about it. Right. But could there be a scenario where the economic data starts to show some signs of life Mm. in China? We saw it with November data out with regard to manufacturing and tech manufacturing. That could be a big point there. The second one is about an earnings catalyst. Hmm. Right now, the consensus, as tracked by LSEG, is for fourth quarter earnings growth in the S&P to be about 4.7%. Not bad, and we saw better numbers in Q3 as well. That could be a catalyst. Remember, earnings season starts just about a couple weeks after the new year does. Right. And then number three, and this is an interesting one because it's just seasonality. Generally speaking, November, December, January have been good months for the stock market overall. If you look at data from the Stock Traders Almanac, over the last several decades, On average, the S&P 500 is up about 1.1% for the month. It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a pretty good performance for the month. 12% annualized, sure. For the month, right. And in fact, the NASDAQ, it's actually the best month of the year for the NASDAQ overall. It's up about 2.7% during the month of January. So we're talking about seasonality, maybe China, earnings catalyst, three potential ones that could push the market higher. Kevin, do you think that's all priced into this kind of Goldilocks outcome in the markets right now? I I do. I think the overall macro theme for 2024 is going to be an expansion of the rally, a rally for the rest, if you will, beyond just those seven large cap technology stocks that drove stocks higher in 2023. the Steve Case thing, the rise of the rest, you know. The rise of the rest, very (laughs) well said. But for that to take place, we really need to move past, we're at the end of this rate hike cycle, and need to move into 
into, now we're starting to get interest rate declines. And that's going to happen once this economic slowdown comes to fruition. And we learned from the Federal Reserve last week that they're now forecasting economic growth of just 1.4% next year and economic growth staying below 2% for the next three years. Yeah. Silver lining to all that, they're going to have to cut rates probably sooner than many are anticipating by more than many are expecting, and that leads to opportunities in stocks. That's actually the perfect opening to bring Stephanie in because she's not quite with the, the – there's, I think, six rate cuts priced in now. But, Stephanie, that's you're thinking maybe, maybe we only get three next year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But if, if, we, get, if we get six rate cuts next year, that would mean the economic backdrop is pretty bad. Oh. Uh, three rate cuts, I think, is, is certainly more consistent with what the Fed's saying, and that would be in an environment where inflation is coming down back closer to 2%, which, by the way, it already is. And growth is, is remaining okay. So, and that would mean just the, the market would have to just push out the, the, the rate cuts. And, and by the way, the market's only expecting the Fed to get that back down to a little bit uh, above 3%. We expect that the market, the, the Fed will ultimately cut down towards about 275. So that's where the rest of the, the rally in the 10 year could come from. Wait a minute. So you're thinking fewer rate cuts, but you have a lower terminal rate? Exactly. Wait, so when, when are the rest of the cuts coming? 2025? Yeah, exactly. We expect it'll be a more modest cutting path where the Fed's cutting once a quarter every other meeting until they get back down towards that that 3% uh, in the next couple of years. Okay, so let's kind of back this up. There's the scenario, there's the Stephanie scenario. We get fewer rate cuts next year. Kevin, what would that mean for the market? Is that, uh, is that benign because it means the GDP didn't slow that much? It's relatively benign unless the Fed stays too high for too long and pushes this economic slowdown into a period of recession. Right now, according to the dot plot chart, they have 75 basis points in cuts next year, 100 basis points in cuts in 2025, and another 75 basis points in cuts in 2026. But you want to see them do more. You I think, think they're going to pull at least one of those rate cuts further into 2024 and we get a full 1% in which cuts Which the market year, is pricing Which it. the market is already pricing it, if not a little bit more. So, and that's because you think inflation is giving them that space and you also think we're going to get slowing economy. So, so as you said, so I'm hearing... Slowing economy, yep. rise of the rest in terms of stocks. Correct. So just kind of explain how the investors should be positioned in, in that kind of environment. Sure. For the next six to nine months, a little bit of defensive positioning may actually be warranted. Lean into some quality names, some good dividend payers, investment grade bonds, municipal bonds, preferred securities. But once the Fed start cutting, look to those areas that were beaten up the most in 2022 and haven't recovered yet. You know I love artificial intelligence. I do believe it's transformative. I think there'll be investment opportunities in AI for years to come. But what's been lost in the AI race is the importance of cybersecurity. Mm. And in fact, AI may only fuel the potential and the success of cyber attacks. So look at names such as CyberArk, Fortinet, CrowdStrike. Yeah. Those are the cyber attack stoppers that can actually provide investment growth once the Fed starts cutting rates for years to come to accompany the artificial intelligence play. Dom, what would you add? I would say what's curious about the economic narrative right now that I found this morning, when you look at the GDP data and the, the consumer-focused stats, mm -hmm. personal consumption-wise there, what it could indicate is that we are seeing a validation of the slowing trends in yes. inflation. And if that were the case, that would make the case for perhaps more than expected rate cuts coming in the coming year. Now, if they're going to happen in March and aggressively, that, that remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the consensus has shifted now towards perhaps multiple rate cuts, but ones that don't start until the second half of the year because you start to see a slowdown in the economy 
in the second half of the year and then into 2025 when things start to pick up again. Maybe, Stephanie, if I could put it this way to borrow the language that Dave Zervos used yesterday, the real question comes down to whether these are victory cuts or defeat cuts, <laughs> right? Are they, are, they, are they cutting from a place of victory because inflation came back down and the business cycle remained intact, or are they cutting from a place of defeat where the, the jig's up and the economy's going into recession? They're very likely to be cutting because they're, they have victory on inflation. I mean, today we got a downward revisions to, to core PCE. When we get tomorrow's data, we're likely to see inflation below 2% on the three and six month trailing PCE numbers. So they've very much achieved victory in a lot of ways on inflation. They're not all the way there yet, but we're very, very close. We've gotten a dramatic rebalancing in the labor market. Quits rate is now back down to where it was before the pandemic. And yeah, wage inflation is still sitting around 4%, but it's likely that will continue to cool down it's been a pretty impressive rebalancing in the economy, and there's likely to be a little bit more to come in the next couple of months. All right, real quickly, Kevin, what would you say is your most out of consensus position if there, if one comes to mind when you look into 2024, the thing that maybe you feel most uncomfortable being out of sync with kind of the, the, the group call? My biggest concern right now is that the Fed surprises us once again and keeps rates too high for too long. We know that they're forecasting 75 basis points in cuts next year as of now, up from just 50 basis points a few months earlier. But there's a wide range of difference in opinions amongst those FOMC voting members. What if they do keep rates high for too long? What if, in fact, we go into this presidential election race and the balance of power changes and shifts dramatically. That's a lot of uncertainty. What if certain of these geopolitical conflicts escalate even further, putting further strains on our own military spending and defense here in the United States? That's for a lot for investors to think about. So some defensive positioning is warranted, but I do believe that we're gonna achieve a relatively soft landing. Inflation will continue to moderate. Inf- interest rates are gonna come down and that marks good days ahead for both stocks. Yeah, I'm and just bonds. thinking down back to uh, a year ago, my favorite, favorite little CNN fear, fear and greed index. Yes, they have um, yep. A year ago was at 39, extreme fear. We had this amazing year no one foresaw. Yesterday we were in extreme greed territory. Today we're a little bit back beneath that, but still, a consensus view, as we mentioned, circling back to the very first thing we said, is for soft landing and that everything's going to be all right. And, and not just that. If you look at some of those indices, not just fear and greed, some of the individual investor surveys, even if you look at the VIX, the volatility index, what it's telling you right now is that there is an expectation that things are not cratering anytime soon, that they might slow down, take a pause, but that there is still no cause for real panic or concern. Right, exactly. And um, and somehow around the corner, something's going to lurk. Something's going to lurk. I was thinking that yesterday oh, some does. of the Taiwan... The, wait, had... the known unknowns? The unknown <laughs> yeah. unknowns? Or what, what exactly is that? <laughs> exactly. Thank you all. We appreciate it today. Our Dominic Chu, Kevin Mann, and Stephanie Roth. Dow's up 107 points. Coming up, one of our next guests calls a potential merger between Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery a long-term survival move. The other calls it a mistake. We've got the latest and the potential impact across the media stocks coming up, plus the fire sale of Signature Bank's $33 billion CRE loan portfolio wrapping up yesterday. We've got a breakdown of the winning bidders, and we'll hear from the man who started commercial lending at the failed bank. And as we head to break, here's a quick glance across the markets. I mentioned the Dow, it's up about a quarter percent today, the laggard. The S&P up four tenths to 47.16. The Nasdaq adding more than half a percent as interest rates have come down. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Don't give it to you. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Warner Brothers Discovery is reportedly in talks to merge with Paramount Global, a deal that would unite some of Hollywood's biggest brands. Shares of both are lower today, but my next guest says the merger shows a touch of desperation, but might be necessary for the company's long-term survival. Joining me now is media and technology executive Tom Rogers, former NBC cable president and founder of CNBC. Tom, it's always good to see you. Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. So uh, smacks to you a bit of desperation. Do they have any better options? Well, uh, they may not. And that's why, while this is not a panacea, it may be the best move uh, both companies can make. Uh, you have these legacy media companies now that are slashing their streaming content and marketing, raising price. That's not a great formula. They're trying to cut costs as best they can with their legacy media properties and then hope for the best. But that hope really hasn't come true. Cord cuttings accelerating, ad sales are getting worse for legacy media companies. And overall, legacy media is declining faster than their streaming services are growing. Mm. So both have an incentive to do a deal here. Paramount only gets less valuable um, as they sit in this current mode. Warner is uh, certainly capital constrained given its debt. It was always a story here from the beginning of the Warner Discovery merger right. that there was another deal in store for, for Warner once its uh, ability to do so when its uh, uh, tax situation gets uh, clear uh, next year. Um, neither of them have a profitable streaming business. Uh, it's out there that the max is profitable, but that's when you count the legacy cable and satellite subs of HBO so on its own, they both have a streaming issue. Certainly shooting one of these and having one stronger combined streaming service has some, some real value with more originals on a single service, originals being what really are the, the great currency for engagement with consumers today. Sure. Uh, there's a very good synergy story here in terms of cost, uh, both on cable networks and news operations um, and uh, uh, Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery has proved that it knows how to get those synergies, but synergies are not a, a stock story. Uh, they obviously uh, have captured all the synergies and the stock has uh, performed terribly since the merger. Right. Uh, so uh, an open question whether this is uh, going to do anything for the stock's near term. I kind of I doubt it. Uh, whether it is a long-term play that may be the best option is uh, maybe a better way to look at it. Well, uh, so that said, what would the next move on the chessboard be, Tom? In other words, you know, maybe WBD sees an opportunity here because Paramount doesn't have any other great options. Uh, pick something, and now again, we're showing their net debt, so that would be significant for WBD to carry. What would be the next move? 
Well, there's some immediate issues that Warner Brothers has to worry about, which is really the NBA sports rights, uh, their affiliate fees with cable operators, which is the guts of the uh, legacy business uh, revenue stream, take a real hit if they do not uh, capture the NBA. Now, that's going to be a next year issue, and this deal wouldn't be closed uh, by next year. Obviously, this would be uh, something they're probably putting together the pieces of a merger in 2026, uh, which is a long way off, given how Netflix and the, the technology streamers are going to be going full speed ahead right. while this creates a, a lot of disruption. But uh, it would help uh, Warner tremendously to have a broadcast network, along with its cable outlets, to be able to navigate the uh, sports world. And it would help both companies to have some greater scale to defray huge sports costs. Paramount alone with the NFL has $2 billion a year that it's uh, got to be staring at. So uh, there's some real value here for both companies on the sports front. But the, I think the way to look at it in terms of next moves is if they don't have better moves, this is really how do you survive for the next five years while linear is in decline, but streaming's growing. How do you look toward five years from now to be one of the top uh, three survivors? That is when streaming has uh, gotten to a point that it is the de facto way for everybody to watch television, mm -hmm. that you've navigated the very choppy waters between now and then to survive as a much stronger company than uh, you might if you uh, go it alone. So I think that's probably the, the way to look at this. Sure. In the meantime, it's uh, doubling down on decline of legacy assets, uh, which is uh, obviously a very risky strategy for the near term, but may be the best opportunity for these players in the long term. Well, an incredible evolution of the media landscape since uh, you know your involvement through and through. Tom, thanks so much. We really appreciate your perspective today. Thanks for having me. Tom Rogers. My next guest says a merger between the companies would be a mistake, but he does see value in a potential partnership bundling their content. Let's bring in Doug Croyt, senior research analyst covering the media stocks at TD Cowan. Doug, you disagree with anything Tom just said there? Uh, no, I think on, on uh, in the main, he, he, he said things that I agree with. I think that it, it, it would be a move of somewhat of desperation. Um, I think one thing he didn't discuss is the fact that any merger between Warner and Paramount would have to go through Sherry Redstone. Uh, she has a controlling voting stake in Paramount. And ultimately, she would have to be convinced that this would be the best for, for her. Um, Doug, let me just ask you that question. I've been hearing about Sherry going through Sherry Redstone for 10 years. And in the meantime, the valuation of this company is completely crumbling uh, before our eyes. What is she holding out for? It's a good question. Uh, I think I, I always think it in terms of, you know, right now she's rich and she's a media mogul. And if she sells the company, she's just rich. Uh, <laughs> there, there is a lot of psychic benefit to being a media mogul. Right. You get to hang out with cool people. You're important. If you're just rich. Well, you know, uh, so I, I think if she sees a future for Paramount. Right that it continues to exist, and, and, and I don't think that's a far-fetched scenario, then she may not want to do the deal. Uh, if she doesn't see a future, then you'd rather be rich than not rich. And so she might be convinced to sell, but this is the other part. Warner can't afford to buy Paramount right now. Like they're way because too the levered, debt? and I think they're at least two years away 
from being able to contemplate that. So you'd be talking about a stock for stock deal, which you know isn't necessarily as attractive if you're looking to exit, right? Warner, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Murdoch sold his stake in Fox Entertainment to Disney. The Scripps family sold their their stake in Scripps to Discovery, right? These were these were sort of we're selling and we're out mm-hmm. deals, not you know we're we're going to accept a, a piece of a larger merged company. Um, there's the other issue, which is, uh, you know, given the people currently in charge of regulation in our country, the odds that this deal goes through unchallenged, I'd say it's vanishingly small. You'd be consolidating two of the major five uh, film studios. Which is ironic, I might just add, given that they both have a crumbling and deteriorating market position. But I guess it goes back to some of the issues around, you know, legacy broadband. Yeah, look. Warner's still going to generate $5 billion in free cash flow this year. That's about as much as Netflix is going to generate. Now, you could say Warner's going in the wrong direction and Netflix is going in the right direction, but this is still a very profitable company. Uh, you know, no one put a gun to their head and forced them to put $50 billion in debt on their balance sheet. And it's the same for Paramount. Like, had they run their business differently, they could be a lot less indebted. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily the job of the government to say, well, we need to merge these companies because of decisions they made in the past. Um, It's not clear these companies are going out of business by a long shot. I I definitely don't think in the near term either of them are. Uh, And, you know, I I don't think there is a big call among most of the people in this country for more media consolidation. Um, You know, Tom mentioned the three survivors. I I don't know that getting to a scenario where there's three distributors of entertainment content in our country is a place we want to be in. Now, if you think, look, Joe Biden may lose in 2024 and you could have a Republican president instead, I'm not sure that makes it all that much easier. I mean, under Donald Trump, the DOJ did challenge the AT&T Time Warner merger. And I think this is probably more problematic than that one from many aspects. That's very interesting. Yeah. the, The regulatory hurdles here are significant. And if you're looking to if you're looking to a solution that has a very uncertain outcome and you're putting your company through potentially two plus years of not knowing what the outcome is going to be, uh, you know, in terms of employee uh, stability and things like that, that could be a very negative outcome. So you're, it's not sort of a risk free uh, choice here to put your company through this. No, I think that's well said, although um, given that the current prospects are probably thinking, well, Doug, what? <laughs> give us a better idea. But we have to save that for next time. <laughs> Doug, I know right now you say standalone, probably better. Clean up the balance sheet. Give yourself some flexibility. We appreciate you joining us today, Doug. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Doug Kreutz joining us from Cowan. TD Cowan. Coming up, over half a billion dollars in freight and thousands of rail cars are stuck at Texas border crossings after government officials closed them for safety reasons on Monday. Union Pacific and Berkshire-owned BNSF are urging for those crossings to be reopened. But with Congress now leaving town for Christmas break, does that leave all of this commerce in limbo? We'll discuss next on The Exchange. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow's up 120 points. We're a little off the session highs, up 327, or kind of a ways off. Uh, the S&P still up almost half a percent, though the Nasdaq a little north of that. The 10-year yield is back up at 390, interestingly enough. Let's get over to Dom Chu. He's back with a look at some of the biggest movers this hour. Dom? Among some of the best performers so far today, Kelly, are the cruise line operators, and that's thanks in no small part to what happened with Carnival earlier this morning. They reported results. They posted a smaller-than-expected loss, better-than-expected revenues. And what's more, it was a rosier outlook for the current quarter as well as the full year. Carnival CEO basically said that they see 2024's full occupancy already two-thirds booked and filled at substantially higher prices on a relative basis. So those shares up about almost 6%. That's carrying up a rising tide, if you will, for these ships. Norwegian Cruise Line up 5% and 4% gains for Royal Caribbean as well. And then the worst performing stock in the S&P by a pretty wide margin so far today, paychecks on the heels of an earnings report that was seen as mixed. Some of the clients out there who use this payroll processor are not seeing as robust trends out there. Fewer people getting hired. Demand for growth in some of these products tied to payroll processing slowing down just a bit amid a slowing job market. So watch paycheck shares down 6.5%. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. That's interesting. Thank you for that nugget. Dom, I'll see you soon. Dom Chu. Over to Bertha Coombs now for the CNBC News Update. Bertha? Hey, Kelly. Rudy Giuliani has filed for bankruptcy just days after the former New York mayor was ordered to pay $148 million to two Georgia election workers for falsely accusing them of helping to rig the 2020 election. He filed his petition in New York bankruptcy court. A European Union court ruled today that FIFA and UEFA, Europe's ruling soccer body, broke competition law by blocking the creation of a European soccer super league. That league would have brought together 12 of the biggest clubs in the sport. After the ruling, the company behind the super league released a new proposal for 64 men's teams and 32 women's teams to play midweek, which could threaten UEFA's Champions League. And stranded cargo and soaring freight part prices are affecting the global supply chain today as the fallout continues over Red Sea shipping attacks. Logistics company Kuhn and Nagel telling CNBC that there are nearly 160 ships currently diverted to other routes carrying cargo valued at $105 billion. At the same time, cargo rates are soaring. A container from Shanghai to the U.K. used to cost about $1,900 to ship last week. Today, that price, approximately $10,000. Kelly, thank God that most of the holiday gifts are all in store and on shore at this point. And that's also why the stocks have held up better than you might have uh, thought otherwise. Bertha, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Bertha Coombs. From one logistics headwind to another, more than half a billion dollars in rail freight is halted along the Texas border as a record surge of migrants look to cross into the U.S. Major railroad lines Union Pacific and BNSF are urging the reopening of the El Paso and Eagle Pass so they can continue their operations. And these are big passings. Union Pacific alone moves $200 million a day in freight through these lines, or 45 of their cross-border business. Combined overall, El Paso and Eagle Pass are nearly $34 billion, or 36% of all cross-border rail traffic in the past year, according to government statistics. For the very latest now on the situation, we're joined by Ian Jeffries, CEO of the American Association, or Association, I should say, of American Railroads. Ian, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Hope you're having a good day. Thank you, too. Well, I'm sure it's a challenging one. What is the status at the border? 
Well, right now, we uh, continue to see the two bridges uh, out of operation. And we understand that the federal officials are dealing with an unprecedented surge in migrant activity and the associated humanitarian crisis that comes along with that. However, at the same time, we, we must strike the right balance that allows for freight to move north and south across the border safely and securely. As you mentioned, uh, Union Pacific alone is seeing a $200 million hit daily uh, of economic activity, and that spreads across our customer base. That's farmers, that's American businesses, that's American workers who are all being impacted by this. And it's time to, to, to stop holding American farmers and businesses hostage and allow them to move their goods across the border, goods yeah. that so many people re rely upon. I think you just said, but if you could elaborate just to give us the mental picture, what is primarily on these, uh, these trains? Well, you have an immense amount of agricultural products moving uh, for export down to Mexico. And uh, you have finished autos, you have auto parts moving north and south, you have chemicals, you have consumer goods. Uh, pretty much every type of product that we move moves in some way, shape, or form, either north or south across these two bridges, Got resulting it. in about 40% of all freight uh, rail cross-border movements on the border. Have we ever seen a, a, a situation like this with commerce halted? Well, unfortunately, this is the second time this has happened in just over uh, a month. And uh, it's something that uh, should not be taken lightly. And what we're talking about really is uh, a handful of uh, U.S. agents that are required to, to, to staff these bridges to keep them open. And we, we again, we understand there's a, a crisis that needs to be dealt with. But redeploying that handful of agents does very little to, to support uh, migrant processing, but really, as we're seeing, has a dramatic impact on freight goods movement hmm. internationally across the border. That's an interesting justification for the move. My understanding was that the, the border crossings are also dangerous, as we've seen a surge in migrants. Is that true? Are death rates and accident rates up? I mean, would you guys potentially have to take measures into your own hands if the situation were left unchecked? Well, we've seen actually very, very little migrant activity coming across that bridge. In hmm. fact, Union Pacific stated over the past five weeks they've had five migrant encounters of individuals using those bridges to cross. And so 100% um, of cargo is screened coming across the border and also visual inspections occur as well. So traditionally we have a very strong partnership and a very uh, uh, high performing system on those bridges uh, with CBP. However, so there's not been an increase in accidents or, or issues there? No, we do not see that coming across the border at those bridges. So your understanding is that the authorities who might have previously been keeping those rail lines open simply had to be redeployed elsewhere along the border to deal with the influx? That's what we've been told by the administration and by CBP. And when is the timeline or the uh, opportunity to reopen those lines being given? What, what, are the, um, what, are you, what are they telling you you're waiting on at this point? How long, could it, how long might it be? Well, we've not been given any guidance on that, and that's a key part of the challenge right now is the inability to plan. Um, our view is that these bridges need to be reopened today. They should have been reopened yesterday for all the reasons that we mentioned. And so we are imploring and continue to implore, along with so many other industries and affected individuals and stakeholders, to, to reopen these bridges today. Oh. Ian, thanks for joining us to explain the situation. We appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Ian Jeffries with the Association of American Rail. Coming up, the FDIC auctioning off more than $30 billion worth of commercial real estate loans that were originated by failed Signature Bank. We'll speak with the former chair of Signature's CRE committee next. And meantime, check out shares of Tesla up about 2% today. Ark Invest Kathy Wood is buying again, adding more than 111,000 shares between her two funds yesterday with the stock down 4%. 
We'll hear her talk about Tesla, Musk, and more in an exclusive interview tomorrow here on The Exchange. Don't miss it. We're back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. 2023 started out pretty rough for the regional banks. Silicon Valley collapsed on March 10th, while New York's Signature Bank failed just two days later. And while First Citizens acquired SVB, a large chunk of Signature's assets were sold to New York Community Bank. And the remainder were put in FDIC receivership, including $33 billion of commercial real estate loans, which the agency has been auctioning off since that sale. It wrapped up just yesterday and saw some pretty steep discounts. My next guest has a very unique perspective on these sales. He started Signature CRE mortgage lending back in 2007 and originated $35 billion worth of loans with zero losses before his retirement in 2018. Joining me here on set is George Klett. He's now president of New York Real Estate Capital Corp. George, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm curious, first of all, um, given your time at the bank, were the loans that ultimately went bad loans that you originated or your team or kind of just walk us through that? Well, it wasn't about bad loans. Uh, Signature Bank took deposits, billions of dollars of deposits from the crypto companies. Uh, They didn't have any loans. When those loans went bad, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, then it was a run on the deposits. So the deposits flowed out almost immediately within days. And that caused the, the capital ratio requirements to go be, you know, below the, what they should be. Uh, so wh- why did the FDIC close them down? I don't know. Um, the weekend before they did, Signature Bank had pledged the commercial real estate uh, portfolio, was about to pledge it, to arrange a loan that would have uh, met the capital uh, ratio requirements. No, and and it would have been necessary. I'm glad that you jumped in and corrected me because when I said loans that went bad, actually the concern with a lot of these banks uh, after everything was then loans that could go bad, but that wasn't the precipitating issue whatsoever. You're absolutely right. In this right. case, it was more crypto related and then right. a deposit flow. So I guess the new piece of information then would be the fact that when they went to sell this portfolio and sold it at somewhat steep losses, mm-hmm. what does that tell you about commercial real estate and some of the loans, again, that were may have been on the books going to way back when? Well, it's mind-boggling because there was no reason to be taking these discounts. And I can give you some specifics on each you know, piece of it there. Um, but they're performing loans, good quality, very highly uh, you know, uh, you know, profitable. And why the FDIC took this step, they probably shouldn't have shut down in the first place. We can argue about that. But why... Was this different? Ordinarily, you'd get a bigger bank, like back in Washington Mutual, was taken over by J.P. Morgan many years ago, and they took over the management of the portfolio and could unwind it. In this case, they could have kept the uh, uh, Signature Bank staff uh, in place. They could have unwound the portfolio over a couple of years, getting much, much higher uh, money for the, uh, the loans. Uh, did, New York, did New York Community Bank, which, correct me if I'm wrong, bought Signature, bought a good portion of the, or the assets? They bought some of the assets, yes. Why didn't they buy the commercial real estate portfolio? That's the great question. And if people say, well, maybe they didn't want the, the portfolio because of the quality. It's not that at all. They were criticized just as uh, Signature Bank was criticized uh, by the FDIC that we were concentrated in commercial real estate. It was too heavy a concentration. Despite the fact that we had zero losses, they wanted to push the banks into diversifying into other businesses. So in that commercial real estate portfolio, what percentage of it was office? 
Do you know offhand? Uh, it's probably under 20 percent. Really? Because I could see an argument for if it were upwards of 50, 60, 70 no, percent, no. and they'd say, well, the pandemic, <laughs> post-pandemic trends have been poor. We expect high losses, so right. these could be toxic assets. But you think the office exposure was under 20 percent, so the rest of it should have been performing reasonably well? Yes, I, I'm sure it was performing very well. And uh, the FDIC does audits in the state banking department every year. Never had a problem. And this came out, this was a shock to everybody. And uh, it just... It felt like it was um, senior management. The, uh, the FDIC didn't like the fact that senior management was taking these deposits. The crypto were, deposits. The crypto deposits. Yeah. And it was legal. And so when it backfired, it kind of, they taught them a lesson now by doing this. But the ramifications to the market is terrible. Not only you know, to, to uh, employees and shareholders, uh, the banking, real estate industry in general. But uh, you know, again, I can tell you, exact, you know, just a little bullet point on some of these. Uh, the, the, Multifamily was a, b- a big part of the portfolio as right. well. Right, multifamily was the biggest part of it, and a very performing portfolio. Good landlords, uh, great you know, buildings in great condition. So and why didn't the private market pay? You would have thought, okay, if if this was the not the correct decision, then this would be a gold mine for someone else out there to be able to bid on this portfolio of assets. Right. But it sounds like it was sold at a steep discount. It was sold at, because it was considered a distressed sale. The way the uh, FDIC put it up for sale, first it took eight months to get to this point. They put it up for sale. And the uh, terms and the structure is very bizarre. Um, so, like, Axos bought a, a piece of I put my glasses on it. Make sure I get the right. <laughs> Please, yeah. Let me see. Axos uh, bought a, uh, which is this is the more normal one, uh, $1.25 billion uh, part of the portfolio, but they bought it at a 37% discount. Mm-hmm. Now, consider that the, uh, the appraisals, FDIC appraisals, uh, had a loan to value of 59%, mm-hmm. and yet there's a $400 million discount for it. That makes no sense whatsoever. So, the question is, why did they do that? Uh, you have Blackstone, a very large company. Uh, they bought $16 billion worth of uh, commercial real estate, um, but they only bought a 20% interest at a 36% discount. Why not the entire thing? Uh, and Who was yet, arranging these sales? Were these open auctions or was this a closed process? It was an open auction. You had to pay a fee to, get, you know, to bid on it, but the FDIC t- uh, uh, set the terms. Hmm. So in this particular they, Did they set the prices? No. They didn't set the prices at all. They just set the terms. So in this particular one, the FDIC maintained 80% interest in the loan hmm. uh, ownership. And would you want to be a partner with the, gov- gov- you know, the government? So not Did they retain people... an ownership in, a, in much of the portfolio? Oh, yeah. Know? So in this particular one, $16 billion, they maintained 80% uh, ownership interest. Uh, and they provided a 50% loan to, uh, to Blackstone to acquire a 20% interest. Uh, related, another big company bought $6 billion of multifamily loans. So right. what For is happening? 5% interest, right. interest. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt yeah. you. What has your experience been like as this sale has gone through and you've seen the results? And, you know, do you feel in some ways like you're implicitly being made responsible for some of the problems at this bank because of the nature in which these sales were made? Or do you just think that this was poorly handled? Oh, poorly handled. They, they really, they didn't know what they're doing. On that, uh, the FDA related the purchase, uh, they bought it for 69%. Uh, 31% discount. Uh, Blackstone, one of the largest companies in, in the world, uh, offered over 80% and they didn't get the bid. Hmm. The question is why? So I've read that they, uh, Blackstone now is going to sue the FDIC. Hmm. So what do you think the lessons or the takeaway should be from how they handled that, the collapse of Signature this year? Uh, again, it's just uh, my experience with the government, and I've dealt with them for many years. I'm in business 50 years, most of it in, in uh, uh, banking. Um, the last couple of years, for some reason, the auditors that came in didn't have any knowledge of, of the business. It was, it was bizarre. 
And I've dealt with them for many years, never had a problem. But they're not business people. And this structure, I don't know where it came from, mm -hmm. but for the FDIC to be maintaining the interest, uh, a large interest in the ownership of these uh, properties. And the big question is, when the funds come in, where's the money going? Hmm. There, there's over $100 million uh, in cash flow every month coming in, probably closer to $150 million. And, and where's the money going? Uh, how about the creditors, the shareholders, the bondholders? And I have read nothing about what their plan is to reimburse those people. Yeah, and you were, you were one of the shareholders as well. I, and I, I still am. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. there will be more to come then, I guess. This is not the end of the story. No, it's not. No. Interesting. George, thanks for joining us to walk through Thank what's you. been happening from your point of view. We really appreciate it. Okay, thank you. George Klett, formerly of Signature Bank. Coming up, we're sticking with commercial real estate to ask how much pain 2024 might bring. And maybe not as much as originally expected, according to Morgan Stanley. We'll explain. But first, the AI gold rush continues. And we have the latest eye-popping funding round next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Still a frenzy around AI shows no sign really of cooling. OpenAI's main competitor, in fact, is in talks to raise another funding round at a valuation more than three times its valuation this spring. Pra practically 2021-esque. Uh, Deirdre Bosa has the details in today's yeah. tech check. Deirdre? It is 2021-esque, Kelly. This is Anthropic we're talking about. This is sort of the other generative AI darling, and it was created by some of the founders of OpenAI who wanted to create a different kind of generative AI company with more focus on safety, the safe development of artificial intelligence. Now, according to a source with direct knowledge, the company is trying to raise $750 million. Menlo Ventures would be leading it at a pre-money valuation of $18.4 billion. It's notable for a few reasons. $750 million sounds like it is a lot of money, but it's actually small compared to other funding rounds for OpenAI and Anthropic. It has raised billions of dollars from, from Amazon as well as Google. And this is a traditional VC, which makes it kind of interesting, Kelly, because the mega caps get something when they invest in generative AI companies. The startups get the compute power, but then revenue comes back in the door for an Amazon or Microsoft or a Google by way of cloud revenue because they're spending on that cloud for that compute power. So it's interesting here in that a company, a typical VC like Menlo Ventures wants to shell out so much money and they're not gonna get the same kind of benefit as a mega cap and relatively, this is a lot more money for them than it is for a mega cap tech company with billions already in cash on their balance sheets. Yeah. I wonder if that's a drone vacuum there or uh, you know some other. <laughs> Deirdre, thank you. We the appreciate sound of money being hoovered up yeah. by the generative AI companies. <laughs> Very good. Deirdre Bosa reporting. Coming up, 2023 could have been a rough year for real estate between higher rates and a regional banking crisis. But this name has climbed nearly 36%. We've got the analyst who called it right here on the exchange with how much room is left to run and his top idea for 2024. That's next.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Morgan Stanley expects the REIT rally to continue next year as they historically rise following a Fed pause. The firm's also bullish on open-air shopping centers. They're actually downgrading Simon Property Group to equal weight and upgrading recency to overweight. But there's one REIT our next guest has been particularly keen on, and that's Welltower, our mystery chart from earlier. Shares are up 30% six year, 36% this year, and 10% since he was on with us in late October. Joining us for more is Ron Camden. He's head of U.S. REITs and commercial real estate research at Morgan Stanley. You made it, Ron. We made it to almost year end, and it was a nail biter at times. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So is Welltower a position you now want to move away from, move more to equal weight? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, we think that Welltower still has room to run, and it's very well positioned as you're going into 2024. The key here, Kelly, is that in 2023, the story was about organic growth. So this was the senior housing sector had lost a significant amount of occupancy during the pandemic. And through recovering that occupancy, well was able to grow organically 14 to 15 percent this year. We still think as you go into next year, you still have eight to 10 percent organic growth in front of you. But what I think drive the outperformance in 2024 is actually going to be their ability to do acquisitions hmm. um, in October. They did three billion dollars worth of deals just in one month. Wow. Um, there's a lot of private uh, investors, institutional investors that are looking for liquidity. And given that well has actually delevered through growth over the last 12 months, we think they're very well positioned to have sort of both engines firing as you go into 24. Yeah, don't let Lena Khan here, you know, she go, wait a minute, three acquisitions in a month. You also like Prologis, which is interesting. This one is still up about 15 percent year to date. Uh, both of these you call kind of defensive growth. Is that right? Why stick with Prologis? Yeah. So the industrial story, there's a secular story of online delivery, and industrials is the infrastructure for e-commerce. Uh, Prologis is the largest REIT uh, in the index. They're also the largest industrial company, and they have the best sort of last-mile infill portfolio. The reason we think it's worth sticking with Prologis is because you're getting, they've guided to about 10% growth for the next two to three years, which is, again, going to be two to three times the rest of the REIT index. And you're getting that with a great balance sheet and a great management team. So the reason we think these sort of names are defensive is because even if the economy slows down or worse, these are names where the demand function can work even in a slower backdrop. I should mention you're still cautious on office rates, although you think, uh, you know, acknowledge the rally that we've seen, but say, look, it could be in its last leg. You're a little bit cautious on uh, Vornado, HIW. Both of those are underweight positions for you. Um, I guess you still remain sort of more optimistic about the consumer, although you are moving from the shopping mall to the outdoor plaza. Yeah, I think that's right. I think what's happening in the office market is um, I think the Sunbelt fundamentals have surprised us to the downside, meaning the work from home penetration is is also impacting demand at a mm. time where supply is actually the highest in the country, higher than New York, higher than sort of San Francisco. So the call there has been, as you look at sort of the Sunbelt market, as your demand slows with a very high supply function, that's going to continue to be a headwind on occupancies and so forth. I would make a similar comment uh, on the West Coast. I think that you're still seeing negative absorption, meaning as leases roll, people are still taking less space. So we think it's sort of too soon to sort of call that fundamental turnaround. And hence why we said this rally that has happened, likely on its last leg as people start to focus again on fundamentals. All right. Fascinating. And I appreciate you talking through what's happening in the office Sunbelt, because that is interesting in the flip side of some of the trends we've been seeing. Ron, thanks for joining us. Good to check in with you. 
Great. Thanks for having me. Rom Camden with Morgan Stanley. And that does it for The Exchange. Dom Chu is getting ready. He's in for Tyler on Power Lunch. I'll join you and him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.